0: Welcome to the National Committee on U.S. China Relations events podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.
1: Good morning to you here in China and good evening to you in the United States. Welcome to our special event to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Shanghai Communique. Today's event is co-organized by the American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai, the Committee of 100, and the National Committee of US-China Relations. My name is Eric Zheng. I'm the president of the American Chamber in Shanghai. And I'm also the chairman of Committee 100 Greater China Region. Our event is being held both online and offline, including an in-person audience here in Shanghai. And also we have over 900 participants online both in China, in the United States, and in other parts of the world. Our event is sponsored by American Express, City, Element Asia Capital, FedEx, General Motors, Johnson & Johnson, and NYU Shanghai. I'd like to acknowledge two honored guests in our audience today here. Mr. Dave Milly, charge of Fair of the U.M. Embassy in China, sitting in the front. And also, <laughs> Madam Jing Ying, Executive Vice President of Shanghai People's Friendship Association. 50 years ago this week, US President Richard Nixon made a historic first visit to China. During the last leg of his trip in Shanghai, President Nixon and Chinese Premier Zhou Enlai signed the Shanghai communique on behalf of the two governments. The Shanghai communique laid the foundation for the normalization of the relations between the United States and China. I still remember that cold winter day in late February 1972 when President Nixon was visiting Shanghai. I was a young student at a school, a few blocks from Jinjiang Hotel where the Shanghai Communiqué was signed. We were told to stay in school all day as the American president and his delegation were meeting with Chinese officials nearby. Back then, China was still in the middle of the Cultural Revolution and America was still labeled as an imperialist. While most Chinese knew very little about President Nixon. There was a sense that something extraordinary was happening between the two countries. President Nixon's one week visit to China 50 years ago changed the world. The rest is history. Our first speaker today needs no introduction. In July, 1971, as National Security Advisor to President Nixon, he undertook a secret mission to China and held talks with Premier Zhou Enlai in Beijing. His secret trip to China laid the groundwork for President Nixon's historic visit to China in February 1972. In the past five decades, he has made numerous trips to China, both as a US official and as a private citizen, having made unparalleled contributions to the US and China relations. It is my great honor to introduce our speaker, Dr. Henry Kissinger.
2: Great privileged to appear on this occasion to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Shanghai Communique. The Shanghai Communique is one of the most extraordinary diplomatic documents in, I would say, history. But let me describe briefly what the background for it was. When President Nixon entered office, the United States and China did not have, had not had a sustained diplomatic dialogue for 25 years. From the beginning, President Nixon had decided that we should establish contact with China and then through a many complicated attempts finally resulted in a channel that went from Pakistan to both Beijing and Washington. The fundamental intention of the strategy of dealing with China was to open the international system to one of its most important components historically and in reality which was the People's Republic of China. And that was accomplished through these messages that went from Washington and Beijing via Pakistan to each other. So after my trip to China which opened the door, there was another set of meetings which prepared the shanghai communique about in october of 1971 and it started with a normal communique type discussion after which to which there was a chinese proposal put forward by chairman mao that the discussions should state the differences between the two sides in order to highlight whatever agreements might be made. And therefore the document that appeared, which I've mentioned was a highly unusual one, was included, a statement of opposing views on a number of subjects. But it also stated four or five agreements of great significance. A statement in which the United States affirmed that it would not challenge the concept of one China. A statement in which both countries indicated opposition to hegemony by any country in the world. In a statement about efforts of cooperation between China and the United States on matters of international import. So, this document has become the guiding principle of the relationship between our two countries. And the essence of what it said about Taiwan was that China would. That the United States, first of all, accepted the principle of one China and therefore would not support a two China policy. And China indicated that it could be very patient about the process of eventual unification. Those are the principles that were augmented by to more communicate in subsequent years that should maintain the basic structure of the discussion. Now at this moment, we are meeting at a moment when it is not always one of cooperation between China and the United States. And I simply want to say that that the safety of the world depends on the two most advanced technological countries to remain in permanent dialogue and to attempt and achieve the settlement of their disagreements in a cooperative attitude. Those are the key issues of our time. And it's in that spirit that I want to thank all of you who have come to this and to tell you that in my opinion and that of many of those that participated in the creation of this and in the opinion of thoughtful people the key to international order is restrained conduct and peaceful discussion between these two great societies. Thank you for letting me come here.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Kissinger, for sharing with us your insight into the historical background of the Shanghai communique and its relevance today as the guiding principle of the relationship between the United States and China. Premier Zhou Enlai play a critical role in normalizing China's relations with the United States. Our next speaker has a unique perspective on Premier Zhou as the niece of Premier Zhou, she lived with him and Madame Deng Yingchao in Zhongnanhai for 15 years. Over the past years, she has dedicated herself to the preservation of Premier Zhou's legacy and to charity causes through En Lai Foundation that she established. Please join me in welcoming Madame Joe炳德, Founding President of NLIFE Foundation.
3: Next, hui the I am the the way of the future, and the the aggressive 体育盛事 23岁的周恩来在欧洲留学的时候 美方在与延安的中共中央有过一段关系密切的交往驻华大使等各方面的美国朋友新中国成立以后周恩来主管着中国的外交只用了 啊, 和, 国际和平的必要性讨论和缓远东紧张局势的问题 1972年 2月 21日 发表了中美友好往来的大门牧场上的家尼克松 in years, he 欢迎晚宴的祝酒词中虽然中美之间仍然存有一些分歧中美两国关系 无论过去, 现在还是将来, 进一步加强联系和沟通我们大蓝祥与慈产基金会
1: Thank you very much, Madam Zhou, for sharing with us your thoughts, Premier Zhou and the uh, U.S.-China relations. Our next keynote speaker is a trade blazer for Chinese Americans in public service in the United States. As a third generation immigrant with ties to Guangdong, he enjoys many firsts first Chinese American governor of a US state, first Chinese American secretary of commerce, first US ambassador to China of Chinese descent. He is currently chairman of the Committee of 100 a co-organizer of our event today. As a fellow committee 100 member, I'm delighted to introduce to you Ambassador Gary Locke.
4: Well, thank you very much, Eric, for that really nice introduction. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and all the esteemed guests gathered in person in Shanghai this morning. And uh, I noticed that there are several hundred in attendance there in Shanghai. And good afternoon and good evening to those in the United States and elsewhere joining via live stream, almost some 500 people. I'm truly uh, honored and delighted to join you today via Zoom to commemorate this 50th anniversary of the historic signing of the Shanghai communique. I wanna thank Eric Jun and, and the American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai and the National Committee on US-China Relations for co-hosting this event with the Committee of 100. It's a testament to the theme of collaboration that we are all celebrating today. I also wanna give special thanks and acknowledgement to former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, who just spoke a few minutes ago, whose pivotal role and leadership 50 years ago is why we're here today. Secretary Kissinger has been a longtime friend and supporter of Committee of 100, and is a seminal figure in promoting U.S.-China relations these past 50 years. More than 30 years ago, Committee of 100 was formed at the urging of Dr. Henry Kissinger as a means of advancing positive relations between the United States and China, as well as furthering the inclusion and advancement of the now nearly 6 million Chinese Americans here in the United States. And uh, uh, as... uh, Uh, Eric indicated, uh, I'm honored to serve as the chair of this wonderful nonprofit organization. And I feel honored and privileged to have been with Dr. Kissinger at events in China, celebrating the various milestones in the U.S.-China relationship, as well as receiving his his wise counsel in many one-on-one meetings, meetings that I will always treasure. For those who are students of the history of U.S.-China relations, The 1970s stand as one of the most pivotal and fascinating decades. At the center of it all is the Shanghai communique, connecting the past to the present and indeed the present to the future. Even though the United States and China didn't formally recognize each other until 1979, the Shanghai communique issued seven years earlier in February 1972 by President Richard Nixon and Premier Zhou Enlai, at the end of an historic week-long visit to China by President Nixon was a crucial event that paved the way for both countries to work towards the normalization of relations after more than 20 years of isolation and no formal contact, as even Madam Zhou remarked. Students of history know, of course, that the signing of the Shanghai communique itself was preceded by what we now call ping pong diplomacy when Chinese and American table tennis players struck up a, a friendship at the World Table Tennis Championship in Nagoya, Japan in 1971. That friendship captured in news photographs and headlines prompted Chinese leader Mao Zedong to invite the American table tennis team to visit China, which they did in April, 1971, marking the first time at an official American delegation had set foot on chinese soil since 1949 that uh, serendipitous moment of friendship between chinese and american athletes provided a crucial opening that government officials took full advantage of both the united states and china had their strategic reasons then for seeing rapprochement be- with the other but the way but with the way eased by sports and friendly competition in July 1971, then assistant to the President for National Security Affairs, Henry Kissinger, while on a trip to Pakistan, took a secret trip to Beijing to meet with Chinese Premier Zhou Enlai, and he gifted Premier Zhou with a rock from the 1969 Apollo 11 trip to the moon. Premier Zhou and Henry Kissinger conducted almost nonstop meetings over two and a half days. Their candid conversations about mutual interests, but also disagreements between the two countries laid the core foundation for what would become the Shanghai communique. When President Nixon finally landed in Beijing in February of 1972, February 21, you know, we're exactly almost 50 years ago, for his week-long visit, a new era in relations between America and China ushered forth. Today, we are all the beneficiaries of that historic week that changed the world. Since then, almost a half a century after the normalization of relations between the United States and China, the connections and ties between the peoples of the United States and China have become so deeply embedded in every aspect of our societies that it's hard to imagine or remember a time when there was no contact. From the last 40-plus years of the U.S.-China trade, helping to lift hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, the most dramatic social and economic transformation the world has ever seen, to recent Chinese foreign direct investment creating more than 2 million jobs in America, from scientific, educational, and cultural exchanges enriching both countries, and even to the most recent example of at least three Chinese American Winter Olympic athletes, all born in the United States to immigrant parents from China, but who were able to exercise their freedom of choice as to what country to compete for in the recent Winter Olympics, our two countries are inextricably intertwined. Of course, the world today is very different from that of 50 years ago. Today's world is smaller in so many ways. And technological change, innovation, scientific progress, while supremely beneficial to humankind, have also resulted in uncertainty and insecurity for many. The last two years of a -a once-in-a-lifetime global pandemic has also caused great anxiety and turmoil. During these times of great flux and rapid change, increasingly louder voices in both countries have been calling for decoupling, withdrawal, and isolation. It has become popular and far too easy to blame or demonize the other, to sow fear and to exacerbate and exploit differences, rather than finding a way to bridge those differences or finding a way forward despite those differences. In America over the past two years, Chinese Americans and Asian Americans have been the target of an unprecedented number of anti-Asian violent crimes and harassment due in no small measure to the false and inflammatory rhetoric scapegoating and blaming the Asian community for the coronavirus, which former President Trump called the China virus. Ethnic Chinese students and researchers in America have also become caught in the dragnet of geopolitical tensions and suspicions between the United States and China, painted with a dangerous broad brushed stereotyping that people of Chinese descent are not to be trusted. Yet it is precisely during these times of fear, anxiety, and division that we have to redouble our efforts to come together, to lower tensions, and to work together within our own nations, but also across the oceans, between our nations. Because what the last few years have shown us is that the world has grown so complex and that the US and China have never been more intertwined or needed to work together than ever before. Whether on global health, scientific and medical advances, world poverty, nuclear nonproliferation, or climate change, all of which affect the entire planet, the entire world, all of humanity. The world is looking for leadership from both China and the United States working together to solve these global issues. Of course, frictions and tensions in any relationship are unavoidable with some fundamental differences between the United States and China, recognized even then by Mr. Kissinger and Premier Zhou Enlai, between President Nixon and Zhou Enlai and Mao Zedong. Relations between the two countries have seen their share of successes and failures, cooperation and disagreements. But the relationship has endured and evolve through multiple administrations in both the United States and China. Because at the end of the day, it, is, it has been of mutual benefit to both sides and to the world. But the future is not guaranteed. How our children and grandchildren will judge us 20 or 50 years from now will depend on what we do today and how we choose to go forward. We would do well to look back and let history be our guide. The passage of time can sometimes make it seem as if an historical event were a foregone conclusion. But those who were intimately involved in it at that time know that the smallest thing could have resulted in a very different outcome entirely. Had the table tennis athletes not approached each other in friendship rather than acrimony, history might have turned out very differently. Had news of Secretary Kissinger's secret trip to Beijing leaked, or had Secretary Kissinger and Premier Zhou not been willing to commit all those hours to respectful, constructive dialogue, we might not be here today at all. Reading the Shanghai communique, and I urge everyone to do so, it is really one of the most remarkable and creative documents in U.S. diplomacy. Both sides laid out some of their most extreme ideological positions in social systems and foreign policy. There was no whitewashing of positions. Both sides disagreed on some fundamental ideological positions. But the two countries agreed that they could disagree and that they should conduct themselves based on principles of respect for sovereignty and territorial integrity, and that neither would seek hegemony in the Asia Pacific region. These are principles that our modern day leaders and politicians should re-examine. It is precisely this principle of seeking common ground while respecting differences that the Committee of 100 has been practicing and advocating for all of our 30 plus years of existence and we still firmly believe in those principles all while we continue to promote positive and constructive engagement between the peoples of the United States and China. Ladies and gentlemen, 50 years after the signing of the Shanghai communique, I believe the impetus of mutual interest still holds. Where the US-China relationship is headed it is still to be determined. But if history has taught us anything, it is that even in the darkest of times, if both sides are willing and determined Change and breakthroughs are possible. 50 years ago, it took courage, clarity, and creativity on the part of everyone, athletes, politicians, statesmen, and ordinary citizens to bring about positive change, to embrace the new, to imagine the impossible. Today, these same qualities are required of each and every one of us who cares about the future of the US-China relations, and indeed, the future of humanity. Who is to say that a friendship started today between a person from America and a person from China, rooted in mutual respect for the humanity and dignity of each other? uh, Maybe over dim sum lunch with, in Cantonese, we call it cha siu bao, won't be the seed that sparks cooperation and a transformational endeavor or discovery and positive change for the future. As Dr. Kissinger himself noted, quote, the relationship between the two countries is the key element for peace in the world, unquote. Despite the current tensions and disagreements, despite our very real differences in the United States uh, and China, we must find a way to coexist peacefully and work together constructively, only together Can we ensure that the next 50 years and beyond is an era marked by peace, progress and prosperity for all. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much, Gary, uh, for sharing your unique perspective on U.S. China relations. Indeed, the essence of the Shanghai communique of seeking common ground while respecting differences remains just as relevant today as it did a half century ago. Next, we are gonna have two panel discussions. The first panel will focus on the U.S.-China diplomatic relations, and it will be moderated by Steve Orlins. Steve is president of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, a co-organizer of this event today. Steve has been deeply involved with China for decades. Before his 17 year leadership role with the National Committee, Steve had a successful career in investment banking with a focus on Asia, including China. Early in his career, he worked for the US State Department and Steve is joining us from the U.S. by Zoom.
5: Over to you, Steve. Great, well, I see a lot of old friends in the, in the audience today in Shanghai. All I can say is I miss you all and I hope that at some point I'll be able to see you in person again in Shanghai. Uh, it's been the longest period of time. I have not been in China uh, since 1979 and, and my heart breaks a little every week. You must wonder why I'm sitting here in a tuxedo and a, and a red bow tie, which I normally wear at the National Committee's annual dinner. That's because I'm at, as you can see in my backdrop, I'm at the Nixon Library um, where we are celebrating the Shanghai communique. Um, in a few minutes, when we're done with this panel, I will go upstairs and I will experience the dishes which were served at the great hall of the people by premier joe to president nixon and secretary kissinger in a way for the for the celebration um while we should be completely celebratory i have to start the panel by saying i am deeply deeply worried that the 50 years of the framework that secretary kissinger and president nixon put in place is being jarred by russia's invasion of ukraine the deaths that are resulting as we're holding this meeting and china's position on that it really is raising questions which this fabulous panel that we're going to have will discuss Uh, we have got a five-star panel of great great diplomats um, and one of Shanghai's great scholars on US China relations. I won't, you have their bios. I'll just briefly introduce B. Camp, who is now editor of American Diplomacy. You all know her as the uh, consul general, one of the consul- consuls general in Shanghai, um, and was the first woman and first public diplomacy officer to lead a US consulate in Shanghai. We have Huang Renwei. Who is in Shanghai? Who is the executive vice president of the Fudan Institute of the Belt and Road and Global Governance? He's held many hats over many years, including being vice president of the Shanghai Center for International Studies. Ken Jarrett, of course, was formerly president of the Shanghai Chamber and Consul General, and Susan Thornton, who is now, I should add, give give. Ken, his commercial, he's now senior advisor at Albright Stonebridge. And Susan Thornton is now a senior fellow and visiting lecturer at the Yale University Law School's Paul Tsai China Center. She of course, her her diplomatic, her storied diplomatic career uh, was capped by her role as acting assistant secretary of state for East Asian and Pacific affairs. But let me start with Ken to kind of, because there's a lot we can learn about what we should be doing today based on what was going on in 1972. So let me start with Ken Jarrett and ask, Ken, can you lay kind of the, the diplomatic strategic scenario for what took President Nixon and Secretary Kissinger to Shanghai?
6: Oh, to start by setting the context and giving some uh, background, uh, we know that, doc, that Uh, President Nixon had been thinking about China, because back in 1967, in a Foreign Affairs article, he had already written about the importance of some kind of accommodation between the two countries. But his attention to China was sharpened by uh, some domestic challenges that he faced in 70 and 71. Uh, Economically, in 1971, the US economy was not doing well. It suffered from high inflation. Uh, The Nixon administration had imposed wage and price controls, taken the United States off of the gold standard, decisions that were described as a Nixon shock. So you had an economy that was troubled. Uh, When he came into office, he had pledged to get the United States out of Vietnam. And this was a major challenge for him. The war was very unpopular. It had expanded into Cambodia with an incursion, secret bombing, the Pentagon Papers had been leaked in 1971, which damaged US prestige internationally and showed uh, the extent to which the government had actually not been completely frank with the American people about how the war was going. Uh, this uh, weakened the United States in terms of its relations with the Soviet Union and its, its international standing. So these were things that Nixon was trying to address he also, remember he was a political leader, he was facing an election in 1972. So he, did, he needed something to change the dynamic. And in 1971, his popularity was at its lowest rate of his presidency, it was it dropped to 50%. Uh, today, we might think that that's actually a very high rating, but you have to go back in time and keep in mind that this was in fact, one of the lowest ratings for any president at that time, which meant that he was quite worried about his prospects for getting reelected in 1972, so all of this came together and created a you know a number of motivations for him to think about uh, something that would change the storyline, uh, would also help to uh, enhance America's prestige, would help him uh, with his election prospects, as well as address what he thought was a geostrategic need uh, for the United States. So he wanted. Uh, to also get the Soviet Union's attention, their worries about uh, further buildup uh, of the Soviet's uh, nuclear capability, their, their, their missiles. Uh, efforts to engage with the, the Russians at that point had not gone very well, so I hope that uh, China would provide some leverage. So the, the strategic triangle uh, was something that he wanted to take advantage of.
5: Could another president, if it had been a Democrat, have done it, Ken? Brief answer.
6: Uh, I would say no. I mean, this is that only sort of a rightist or an anti-communist like Nixon would have had the ability to do this because the American people uh, really weren't prepared uh, yet for this kind of initiative, which is an interesting question for today, this question of uh, domestic opinion and to what extent should this uh, drive policy as opposed to a leader uh, shaping American, uh, shaping public opinion. Renway, tell us what was going on in in,
5: in China. Tell us, in fact, you have a great story about what you were doing when the Shanghai communique was issued.
7: Thank you. I can tell a very, very minor story about myself at that time, at that moment. In February 1972, I was a young, educated young man in the Heilongjiang Soviet border. that time, I was standing by the river in the very serious colder weather, minus 40 degrees facing the Soviet Army. And uh, we received a radio broadcast from Soviet Union, which said the Communist Party of China and the US imperialism going together. We thought it was a rumor. One month later, I finally read the People's Daily with a picture of Chairman Mao shaking hands with Nixon. So this gave me a very strange experience. Later on, I talked to the so-called China boys of Kissinger Mission, like Friedman, like Lot like, uh, uh, Rui Those senior diplomats. They said because you were there, we were in Beijing. So we was we were part of the triangle of the Soviet, U.S. and China. And that. That triangle was the start point of Shanghai Communique, And China find common interest with US, US find the same with China. And based on this common interest, China-US reached a consensus on Taiwan issue. We made some compromise Though we have very different idea and different expression, but finally we get the same point of one china principle. And we also find the same important base of regional order that both country does not want to seek hegemony in Asia Pacific and against any country try to set up uh, hegemony in this region. So, these two core parts of Shanghai Communique, one China principle and no hegemony in this region, was and still is the base of China US relations. Though we are facing many troubles now, ups and downs, turns and twists and we, feel, even we, we might facing, face more problems and crisis. But I think only this base and framework can keep China-U.S relations moving forward. So
5: Renwei, was there, was there much resistance within the senior reaches of the Chinese government to this initiative?
7: I, I think we still keep this way, keep this direction.
5: I meant in 1971-72.
7: Yeah. I, I think uh, people in China believe we still have greater, broader, deeper foundation of common interests with the US. No matter some people want to de-link our relationship, I don't think it will be success.
5: Well, China at that point was supplying the Viet Cong with with equipment to fight the Americans, <laughs> um, you know, what, what there could have been considerable resistance. It was it was driven, I assume, by the fear of the Soviet Union.
7: That time we were really facing the very very serious threat from Soviet Union, and uh, Mao Zedong saw this for several years how to change the environment of China outside, and also because the inside China was under the Cultural Revolution, we had a very difficult period.
5: Yeah, and yeah, um, the reason I'm asking that is because our greatest common interest yeah. was, uh, you know, the, was the Soviet Union, was, was fighting against the Soviet Union. But the common
7: interest, and, is, you widen and the, still growing up like common threat from bin laden after after 9-11 and also common threat of the international financial crisis after after 2008 also we are facing global warming we are facing COVID-19 so common threat always there and the china us should work together
5: this is i agree with that the point the point i'm leading to which will come up in later questions there's a great irony in events over the last 24 hours that the soviet union pushed us together and the russian federation or China's stand on the russian federation's invasion of of ukraine may push us apart that it may change the structure but we'll get to that in a later question b you you in your diplomatic career you you know had three decades in China almost. Tell us about what kind of the beneficial results of the Shanghai communique were in your kind of experience as a diplomat in China. What were the highlights?
8: Okay, well, thank you, uh, Steve, and hello, Shanghai. It's good to be back in the family, however, remotely. My first uh, assignment in China started in 1984 and then I had a large gap before I returned to Shanghai in 2008, so it was a very dramatic gap with many things that happened. Um, The thing about cultural and educational exchanges is that uh, it's a long-term process. There's no dramatic moment you can point to and it rests on many shoulders. But there's still some pretty good examples. And of course, the best is um, shown in the student numbers. Uh, During my first assignment in 1984, uh, naive young Americans were flocking to China uh, for teaching jobs, not knowing exactly what they were coming to. And uh, they were also coming to the embassy for curricular materials. 25 years later, I was in Shanghai when um, NYU and Duke uh, broke ground for campuses there. So huge changes in those 25 years. China's initial plan was to send 500 students to the U.S. in uh, specific scientific and technology fields. The U.S. government realized that the Soviet model, which is one so one Russian for one American, would not work there were only um, 100 Soviet scholars in the US in 1978 and compare that with a year later when there were already 2000 Chinese students. Uh, The number rose to 63,000 in 2001 and peaked at 373,000 in 2019. And these students had a huge economic impact uh, as well as in business research, venture capital, the arts, you name it. And in the other direction, uh, normalization opened the door for schools such as Oberlin, Yale and Princeton to resume programs that had left 30 years earlier. And of course the Fulbright program, uh, sadly now in abeyance had notched many successes as well. Of course, there were many other US government funded exchanges going on, sending scholars and others to the US and bringing speakers to China. Uh, One speaker that sticks in my memory from the early 1980s was historian John Toland. Uh, His program at the China Institute of History was probably the first exchange between Chinese and U.S. historians about the Korean War, and it was eye-opening for both sides. And I traveled to Shanghai when a group of famous American writers, including Toni Morrison and Allen Ginsberg, met with Chinese writers. I'll never forget hearing Gary Snyder proclaim to a group of people who had suffered through the Cultural Revolution not many years earlier, that the true oppressed of the earth are the grass and the trees. How do you measure the impact of such encounters? We won't. We never know for years, and sometimes we never know, but the people who were involved uh, are greatly impacted, greatly affected by that. And I would also like to include cooperation in science, the environment, and health. The US um, Energy Department's Princeton Plasma Physics Laboratory worked together with the Hefei Institute of Plasma Physics on uh, fusion reaction research. I was uh, completely amazed when I visited uh, that center in Hefei and saw how they were working together. And our EPA collaborated with the Shanghai EPA uh, on Air Now monitoring in Shanghai and American CDC personnel assigned to China had their office within the Chinese CDC working together on avian flu, as well as collaborating on disease response in Africa and elsewhere. This kind of cooperation has now been halted to the detriment of the whole world. One other notable event for me was the return of the ashes of John Layton Stewart, uh, the last US ambassador uh, in 1949, who had been scorned years earlier by Mao, who wrote his famous piece known by Chinese schoolchildren as Bielus uh, Dang. Deng, And we were able to return the ashes, his ashes, to his birthplace in Hangzhou, a very positive gesture that was aided by Xi Jinping, uh, uh, who had been the former party secretary in Zhejiang. And a young, at the um, at the cemetery, we were surprised uh, by a group of uh, Yanjing University alums from the 1940s who had hidden a tape recorder playing Amazing Grace in the bushes. Uh, I don't know how they knew that this was going on but it showed their affection uh, and memories for this uh, former leader of their university that had been founded by by Americans. Uh, And because AmCham and the Committee of 100 were so deeply involved in US participation in the Shanghai Expo, um, I'll end by mentioning the visit of Hu Jintao to our pavilion. Uh, And I couldn't have been more pleased uh, when Wang Qishan called Hu Jintao's attention to the uh, US list of corporate sponsors on the wall. You all would have been very proud. Um, and then because, uh, Steve, you had mentioned also other um, kinds of exchanges uh, in my career that weren't involved with China, and because we're all thinking of Ukraine at the moment, um, I can also mention another example. When I was working at the Smithsonian, um, the U.S. Embassy in Kiev uh, worked with the Smithsonian to uh, install a, uh, the first spark lab uh, outside of the United States, um, a center for Ukrainian students to uh, create things, uh, practice creative thinking, uh, and learn about inventing. Um, So there are many projects um, that again, it's hard to tell at the time, but they have lasting impact. Of course, there were many frustrations and setbacks, but I'll leave those for future conversation. Thank you.
5: Susan, lessons from the Shanghai communique that are applicable today or have been applicable over the last 50 years. So take us on a whirlwind tour of the last 50, but bring us up to today. And what have we forgotten? What have we not learned properly? And what have we continued to to learn appropriately?
9: Thank you so much, Steve. I mean, it is incredible when you look back at what happened in 1972 to see how much we've forgotten, how short our memories are. This is a common affliction, of course, of Americans, but it's really striking to read through the Shanghai communique. uh, And I'm struck by how enduring what is written there is and how foundational it is still today to the US-China relationship. For example, there's a a sentence in the communique in the part from the United States that says, the United States believes that the effort to reduce tensions is served by improving communication between countries that have different ideologies so as to lessen the risks of confrontation through accident miscalculation or misunderstanding. That was in 1972, but it sounds almost exactly like What we say today about the differences that we have and the need to manage them. We talk now about establishing guardrails or crisis avoidance mechanisms just to make sure that the areas of difference don't veer into conflict. And we've heard even President Biden uh, speaking about this today. So, you know, of course this is going to require improved communication. Um, it, it, It will involve discussions of very sensitive and Um, difficult issues. And our officials uh, who were doing this in the past are unfortunately no longer very seriously engaged in doing so. A lot of the mechanisms that were set up to take on these kinds of hard conversations have atrophied. And I think, um, you know, this will need to change. Just this morning, I was on a conversation among former U.S. and Chinese officials about a crisis scenario, an accident between our two militaries and how to keep it from escalating. And it was an excellent, respectful, candid discussion where both sides discovered things they hadn't known before. And it would be so valuable for um, uh, officials to be doing this uh, now in real time. So I think um, we have to manage to work on these issues directly. Um, Another line from the communique, is countries should treat each other with mutual respect and be willing to compete peacefully, letting performance be the ultimate judge. Um, Now this speaks to the issue of competition between China and the United States, which has clearly always been there. Um, It was in 1972 because it's in the communique, Um, but the importance of mutual respect and peaceful competition is highlighted. And this is obviously something on which we could have a very long discussion, but the sentiment reflects this expectation for manageable competition that is healthy and fair. And here again, we're talking about institutions, rules, constraints that must be negotiated to have fair competition and an orderly and stable world. And um, I I was struck by um, Dr. Kissinger's points uh, with respect to this that you know he noted that we have to have you know constraints restraints and discussions in order to have the kind of world that we want to have ordered and I think uh, these will likely come back into fashion if they're not in fashion today and um, you rightly noted um, the areas of the world uh, in the former Soviet Union, Ukraine, and Russia, where they are not being observed today, and that is causing all of us a great deal of angst. Um, I can come to that at the end if, if uh, we get a chance to come back to it. But another comment from the uh, uh, sentence from the communique, um, you know, the last part, the two sides expressed the hope that the gains achieved during this visit will open up new prospects for the relations between the two countries. And they believe that the normalization of relations between the two countries is not only in the interest of the Chinese and American peoples, but also contributes to the relaxation of tension in Asia and in the world. And I think um, you know, several people have mentioned the important language on Taiwan in the communique um, that was a major breakthrough and constituted the platform on which progress was able to go forward from here. But this notion that, you know, there will be benefits that come out from having improved relations between these two major countries. um, And we have to make joint efforts toward cooperation in order to realize those benefits and and what this really says to me is that the framework of the u.s china relationship was basically set in the shanghai communique and has never really changed it remains the same today we have differences um, and we have areas of competition but these should not spur confrontation or conflict Um, if we make serious efforts at managing and narrowing those differences and keeping competition within rules and bounded Uh, but to balance this we do need to focus on the gains we can achieve together and seek them out and pursue them with complete determination and I think the structure is there in the communique as it is with us today Um, we have the Biden administration's framing of cooperate compete and confront I know that Chinese counterparts don't like the last word, confront. Um, A few administrations ago, we used the word candor, which was sort of code for the same thing, but with Foreign Minister Wang Yi's um, advocacy also of dividing issues in US-China relations between three lists, issues for collaboration, issues for negotiations, which is the competition part, and then issues for management, which is the, you know, uh, um, reserving our differences. You know, we have to manage our differences and talk about them and make sure they don't get out of hand. So I think this is the reality of the complex relationship between the U.S. and China. Uh, it was the reality in 1972. Um, for me, the Nixon visit shows what you can do with political will and determined leadership. Someone mentioned courage and bravery, which I think can certainly make a difference. Um, but I don't think we're fated to stay stuck on the, on, on the track we're on. We can, we can change things, and um, I think we need to focus on how to do that.
5: The, the people who want to ask questions who are online, please use the Q&A function, and I can see those questions. In fact, we have a question that kind of comes from the other side, so to speak, uh, from Joe Bosco, who says, are there no second thoughts about how things have turned out? You know, after all, Nixon himself said, we might have created a Frankenstein. Any second thoughts? Ken, Renway?
9: Well, I don't think there's a deadline, right? I mean, what do you mean how things have turned out? Has history ended and we're all now just fated to be suspended no, well, in animation? Fi- the last
5: 50 years. <laughs> so are we in a, I think he's asking, I, maybe he'll put it, you know,
6: well, so, associate <laughs> this notion that it somehow it was a the biggest geostrategic blunder. This is how it's described in some of the recent analyses of the document. But to Susan's point, uh, at what point in history you, do you decide that you're going to make a, a definitive judgment? And maybe a hundred years from now, we'll conclude that actually was was in fact brilliant. Uh, but the you know, the fact that for most diplomatic communiques they're immediately forgotten. This one is still very much remembered. This says something about the value of the communiqué. It has it did create the structure that both governments turn back to constantly. It's true that it was it built upon because there are two other there was the normalization document of 79 as well as the 82 communique. So it wasn't that the Shanghai communique was the only document that created the framework, but it was the starting point and it did make this key contribution of helping guide the management of differences and still allow for work to move forward in areas where the two governments uh, can cooperate. And that's, as uh, Susan mentioned, And these are uh, themes that are very much with us uh, to this day still.
8: Yeah, I would second that. I think the uh, cooperation that we have seen in these 50 years far outweighs um, the conflicts and that we still have a long way to go. Um, we, particularly in areas like health and in the environment, uh, we need to keep on with the dialogue, keep on with the cooperation.
7: Renway. I, I believe Shanghai community uh, made a very far sight base. Like uh, Susan just now mentioned, many, words, many paragraphs in the document was so sight, and like just happened today. So we should, we need to this document and find what we should, many people now change their, their mind, believe the ideological elements is the basic element of our bilateral relations. Actually, Nixon and Mao Zedong already solved the decision. Okay. Yeah,
5: I think what, I mean, it's an interesting, it's interesting I mean, it strikes me as one of the great um, documents of history, you know, just genius. Um, and what I guess, because when I first went to Asia in that, at that time, and, a lot of my classmates were dying in Vietnam. Um, obviously China then had a, a war with Vietnam, but after that, so from 1979 till now, we've basically had peace in Asia. And if you look from prior to 79, you know, tens of thousands of American soldiers dying. And we tend to lose sight of that in the discussions of the structure that was put in place by the Shanghai communique It's not only the lifting of millions of hundreds of millions of Chinese out of poverty and all the economic growth and and the things that have occurred, but we we have basically had peace. Um, what? Let me ask. I'm I, I, I'm being told we're running out of time. Is that possible? Um, the. What should we do about Ukraine? What should I am, as I said at my opening, I am deeply worried that the Chinese government violation of its own principles of, as was said earlier, territorial integrity and sovereignty will create a rupture in U.S.-China relations. Uh, We had Joanne Lai's niece on giving a talk and I'm sure, sure that was a tenant of, of Zhou Enlai, uh, territorial integrity and sovereignty. And China is not really standing up for that principle. So what what should we do? Whoever wants to take that question. Volunteers? Well, I Renway? think certainly uh, that
9: the, the aggression and the changing of borders needs to be um, rejected in the most vociferous way by all members of the, you know, certainly the P5 members uh, outside of Russia of the UN Security Council. So in my judgment, you know, there are these principles here that um, China has, I mean, they're in the Shanghai communique, in fact, that the two sides agree that countries should conduct their relations on the principles of respect for sovereignty and territorial integrity of all states, non-aggression against other states, non-interference in the internal affairs of other states, equality, mutual benefit and peaceful coexistence. So, I mean, it's the bedrock of, of kind of China's uh, approach to the world. And I think, um, you know, it's a very difficult position to be in clearly, um, not one that we would any of us wish any of us to be in, but um, I think we will continue this discussion and I hope that um, we can come to some uh, common view on on at least that.
5: We still have 20 minutes. I misread a message. Um, Renway or Ken, you have a view on that?
7: Yeah, you raised the, the Ukraine issue. It's so complicated and uh, as a scholar, I give my personal view not official, okay? Ukraine issue is very complicated. You see, it's the legacy of Soviet Union, and it's the legacy of Cold War. It's the legacy of NATO, Eastward movement or expansion. So many factors shaped this issue and this situation today. Not only one man like Putin can, can work out the whole situation. And uh, between Ukraine and uh, Russia, they have 1,000 year and more change back and change back, back and forth. So many changes. And even after the collapse of Soviet Union, they didn't... They, have, they had not solved the border issue. There is no agreement between two countries of their border to have very clear lines and how to solve the problems of Crimea and the other states. There are a lot of things. And the NATO East expansion gave great pressure on Russia. So Russia made Offensive then defensive. You see, eastward eastern expansion of NATO raised many questions, like Yugoslavia, like the Baltic Sea. You see, many things. Why US and NATO do not reflect itself. Okay. I don't want to say we support Russia. We don't support any war in this region. But if we trace the reason, the cause, they are very complicated, not a one-sided problem.
6: So Steve, I assure your worries that this will become another point of tension between the United States and China. It's hard to see how we could avoid that. It's just a matter of the degree to which this becomes another irritant. And we'll have some opportunities in the days ahead to see what further statements China makes. I presume that the UN Security Council will take up some kind of resolution, even if uh, Russia vetoes it. We'll have to see what China decides to do in that setting. China faces some very difficult choices in this situation, because it does violate uh, many of their core principles that they've been articulating for many, many years. Uh, Yet they have been tilting toward the Russians, and they will be viewed, at least by many in the United States, as somehow abetting or or allowing this to move forward by not using their influence in Moscow to discourage Russia from taking this step. Uh, So how they decide to to manage this challenge for them in the next few days will shape the degree to which it becomes an issue in U.S.-China relations.
5: China will need to decide, as the Biden administration puts in place severe sanctions, Uh, China will need to decide, is it going to try to create workarounds on those sanctions, or is it going to simply accept uh, the U.S. sanctions? And that action will either strengthen U.S.-China relations or further divide them. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesperson has said those sanctions are illegal and ineffective. I don't think they're illegal. One can argue whether they're effective or not, but statements like that put further distance between the US and China, and I think are deeply troubling. But let me, let me ask a question. Obviously, this is a, we're a very pro-constructive engagement panel. Uh, everybody believes that this has provided great benefits to the American people and the Chinese people. How can this anniversary be used to kind of help in US-China relations to somehow try to resolve some of the burning issues, whether it's the South China Sea, Hong Kong, uh, Xinjiang, uh, human rights issues, um, East China Sea issues, you know, we have Taiwan issues. Uh, can we use this anniversary to create something positive? Susan?
10: Well,
9: um, I think the anniversary, you know, can uh, create something positive in terms of reminding us of the foundations of the relationship, how important the foundations are, how momentous the shift was when the opening happened, um, etc. I'm, you know, if if anything, I think the communique itself um, shows us how to kind of manage a problem without actually solving it. And this gets to sort of a cultural difference that we have in US-China diplomacy that comes up a lot in discussions about our negotiations and the effectiveness of them, um, where the US is always trying to get an answer and then move on to the next problem. Whereas a lot of these problems are frankly, you know, going to take quite a long time to resolve. And that's been shown to be the case over years. So um, in the meantime, you know, effectively managing a lot of these very difficult issues where we have differences, and you named some of them, um, is the most important thing. And I would say that the biggest success of the 50 years since the Shanghai communique is the evolution of the Cross-Taiwan Strait, cross Strait issue, um, you know, we have maintained the peace there, we have enabled an environment where you've got incredible prosperity, not just across the Taiwan Strait, but in the entire region, um, but certainly the developments on Taiwan have been you know, beyond anybody's expectation back 50 years ago. And, you know, uh, the peaceful development of that situation, which has taken pretty intensive management in U.S.-China relations, I think has been a great success. But the problem is not quote-unquote solved, um, I don't think, by anybody's, um, you know, definition of that term. So, um, you know, there are certainly a lot of things that that need to be done in the US-China relationship, negotiations in that space of competition that we need to have around many of the issues um, that are the most difficult, I think, management of new technologies, management of weapons, arms control negotiations, all these things should be done and can be done. And I, I, I think um, when people say that you know, uh, talking is, a waste of time between the U.S. and China. We're not getting anywhere. I just think that that's just not true, and it's not borne out by the evidence. It's a it's a myth. It's a fiction um, that is belied by the record and and lots of other um, evidence. So, you know, I would like to see some uh, serious negotiations undertaken, but we're not in that game right now, but I hope we can get back there so that, the, because that's the way you're gonna get progress on issues.
5: Ken, Renway, anything on that? Using the Shanghai communique to kind of improve I, relations, the anniversary to improve relations between the United States
7: and China? I think the vital spirit of Shanghai communique is, or worse, still is, the principle and the, the compromise these two factors, how to make balance. China should one side stick on its core interest that is sovereignty and territory. And the other side, we should make some compromise with other countries, especially with US. We did this, we have done this for the last 50 years. U.S. Is should, think of, is think, should think of this too. Your, your principle and the, how we make compromise with China. So both sides should do the same thing. The core interest and the compromise make balance. And Steve,
6: in terms of the anniversary, let me just the contrast of, of what has happened over the last 50 years. That's one way to use the anniversary to demonstrate to both Americans and Chinese, that U.S.-China relations have brought benefits. Uh, Today, this is one of the challenges that the two governments face because uh, in both populations, there is a lack of uh, alertness or sensitivity to the fact that the relationship between the two countries actually has brought significant and positive uh, changes to to both sides. Uh, And Americans in particular, I feel, do need to be reminded of the benefits that they have enjoyed uh, from a relationship with China, particularly at this, this time. So rather than see uh, the China communique as some form of an original sin that you know started the process of all of these problems that we're sort of dealing with now, it should still be viewed as something that put in motion you know a series of very positive and constructive uh, changes that got us to where we are today.
8: Now the political discourse these days is uh, so difficult uh, that it's hard to imagine the Shanghai communique being put forward today. But um, I have to agree with Ken and Susan, you know, that it using the example, the shining example of when we do agree and what we get out of that agreement uh, is perhaps the legacy that we wanna take forward, uh, that we can deal with each other with mutual respect and even though we have differences, we can move ahead.
5: Yeah. I mean, everybody should go back and read the communiqué. I think that's been suggested by a lot of the panelists because it lays out all the places where we disagree, which, are, which were completely, they were fundamental. And then says, but in the interest of world peace, in the interests of a whole variety of, of, of results, we should establish liaison offices in each other's capitals. We should do the following things and work together. Um, Question from Bill Armbruster from the audience: uh, Will the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine affect China's calculus with respect to Taiwan? Renwei, do you, you, you want to touch that one?
7: <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't like this question, but you, but to you, really... I didn't think so. Okay, I'll ask Ken. no, no, Jared. no, no. no. You raise the question, then I try my Mm. something in my mind. Uh, Taiwan is Taiwan, Ukraine is Ukraine, they are different. Ukraine is one independent country, Taiwan is not. And uh, Ukraine was part of Soviet Union, and Taiwan was, or is, still is, Republic of Taiwan China that ruled the mainland China before 1949. So that is, that was one China where when China come, came from it came from Republic of China the, the regime in Nanjing. You see so it's different. We, we are not the same issue like Ukraine with Russia, mainland Taiwan belong to one country. If if US recognize this historical fact and also recognize or acknowledge this in the three coming case, there's no question, no problem between China and the US, you see. So we don't change any framework of Shanghai Communique. So we won't have the same crisis like Ukraine and Russia. So the problem is who is or who are changing the framework and the fr- and the base of Shanghai Communique. I don't believe both Washington and Beijing wants to change. Okay.
6: See, Susan, I would say, I mean, absolutely, China, can. thinking about Taiwan as I watched Ukraine and uh, to see to what extent uh, Russia, what kind of costs do they have to pay. I don't subscribe to the notion that China is uh, going to move on Taiwan while the West is distracted by Ukraine. That doesn't strike me as a likely scenario. But uh, China definitely will take some uh, lessons from the reaction to what, uh, to how this situation plays out in the Ukraine. Susan?
9: I mean, it strikes me that um, the approach of Vladimir Putin to Ukraine is to make it into a military objective and a military problem and a question of taking territory and subduing a population. And um, I don't think that that is China's first choice for how to deal with Taiwan. And I don't think they see it as a military objective, at least not in the sense that I think Vladimir Putin is currently looking at Ukraine. And I think uh, there is a lot more space on the Taiwan question to uh, work over a period of time to resolve it peacefully. And I think that the... uh, leadership in China, the government of China, the people of China certainly would prefer that scenario vastly to the one they see unfolding in Ukraine, no matter matter how they view the Western response, because it's going to be terribly costly for many, many people. So um, I think that demonstration will be one result of this escapade of Vladimir Putin's that, that might be helpful, actually, to the Taiwan
8: situation.
5: anything on that
2: one?
8: No, I think that they will be looking at the world reaction to what Russia is doing in Ukraine, and uh, will take that uh, under advisement and um, adhere to the principles or straddle the principles, um, perhaps giving Russia some support, but at the same time realizing that um the whole world is watching
5: yeah it, it looks like when all is said and done there'll be three countries in the Ro- in the russia coalition iran and china and russia itself except for the dependent um republics that russia controls <laughs> Uh, But that will not, in my view, be a a happy moment for for U.S.-China relations. And I hope that the Chinese government folks who are on this call hear that message quite clearly because it is, for someone who has supported constructive engagement strongly as I have over a long period of time, this failure to condemn Russian aggression Even with Fren Wei's explanation that it is complicated, this is not complicated. This is a member of the United Nations. This is a sovereign country. Zhou Enlai would be crystal clear on what China would need to do. So I think we're just about out of time, Um, and I'm supposed to go up and eat the wonderful meal that was served to President Nixon and Secretary Kissinger. Um, So eating the same dishes, but you know, it's it's the message that we've heard from the panel is the Shanghai communique not only was genius, but it was put forth by bold, courageous, and brave leaders. And to keep the US-China relationship on track, we need on both sides of the Pacific, bold, courageous, strong leaders. We don't need leaders. Nixon, Kissinger didn't poll America. Mao and Zhou Enlai didn't poll China to decide what was in the national interest. They made a decision what was in the national interest. And I think the last 50 years has proved them to be correct. So we should celebrate that, but ask our leaders to be bold Strong and courageous. I thank the panel so much for doing this. I miss seeing you all in person. I miss all of my friends in Shanghai. I miss being at the Jinjiang for this uh, event uh, next Monday uh, on the twenty-eighth, which will celebrate the the uh, the actual fiftieth anniversary of the day the communiqué was issued. But thank you, Shanghai Chamber. Thank you, Committee of One Hundred. We didn't even get to the issue of the. Justice Department seems to have ended, uh, the U.S. Justice Department seems to have ended the China Initiative, which is great news um, and something which Chinese Americans and should be celebrating. Um, and as C-100 is one of the sponsors, something that they worked hard to educate the Department of Justice on how this was not consistent with Department of Justice prosecutorial guidelines or American values. But, we didn't get to celebrate that, but that's good news. In these dark days, that's certainly a piece of good news. But thank the panelists for this stellar panel.
1: Thank you for your
5: patience.
1: So we have our second panel ready. The <laughs> Second panel will focus more on commercial and educational exchanges between the United States and China. And it will be moderated by Sean Stein, chairman of AmCham Shanghai. Sean is well known to many of you, uh, particularly in the Shanghai business community. He's a senior advisor to Covington with its public policy advisory group. Prior to joining Covington, Sean served as the US Council General in Shanghai. He has over 20 years of experience in Asia and has served in leadership roles in China, Washington, and Asia. Sean is joining us by Zoom. Over to you,
11: Sean. Great, thank you very much, uh, Eric. It's uh, an honor to be here. And good morning to all of our friends back in the United States, Um, except for maybe good afternoon to our friends who are Zooming in from Hawaii, where I understand we have a number of guests. And good morning to all of our friends in China. I wish I could be there in person, uh, but I've thoroughly enjoyed and found this uh, morning's discussions to be extraordinary. From the remarks from Dr. Kissinger and Madam Zhou and uh, Gary Locke and certainly the panel, which we just saw, it's really been a morning where there's been a lot of valuable discussion and real insight and understanding about uh, the Shanghai Communicate, how it's affected the trajectory of US-China relations and frankly, the trajectory of developments around the world. And I'm just distressed as I think we saw in the last panel, as so many of you are, that at a time when we should be coming together to celebrate the decision of two countries to embrace peace and embrace dialogue and peaceful coexistence and productively working through problems in the relationship uh, that in another part of the world, we have a country that has chosen war and aggression uh, that's causing extraordinary suffering uh, for people in, in Ukraine. And so with that, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about something that Dr. Kissinger said in his remarks and that Ken Jarrett built upon. Dr. Kissinger described a few moments ago the Shanghai communique as, quote, one of the extraordinary diplomatic documents in history, which it absolutely was. And Ken Jarrett pointed out that so many diplomatic communiques, Uh, are tossed in the rubbish bin of history shortly after they were read because they don't have any greater meaning. But this one had greater meaning. And I know when I was a young diplomat many years ago, in fact, um, some of the words of the Shanghai communique became so familiar in my discussions with, with the Chinese government that to this day, they roll off the tongue and will be forever committed to memory. So it did have an enormous diplomatic impact. But what I'd like to highlight is something different. I think one of the things that made the Shanghai communique so important and so revolutionary, and and Dr. Kissinger's words, such an extraordinary diplomatic document, is it recognized one thing, one thing that was really important, and that I hope we're gonna explore in our conversation today. And that was the idea that the relationship between the United States and China was never really going to be driven by dialogue between Beijing and Washington that dialogue could open the door that dialogue could pave the way for others but the real work of building the relationship was going to be done by regular americans by regular chinese by businesses by traders by investors by universities and academics and students and that's where the real strength and the glue and the mortar and the cement of the relationship was going to come from and it was recognized very clearly right in the you know in the middle of the shanghai communique which we look at its breakthroughs on discussions about areas where we disagree, but it said the two sides agreed, the importance of broadening the understanding between the two peoples. And they also discussed specific areas such as science, technology, cultural culture, sports, and journalism in which people-to-people contacts and exchanges would be mutual beneficial. And it also highlighted that bilateral trade is another area where a mutual benefit could be derived and agreed that economic relations based on equality and mutual benefit are their interests of both countries. And so what the communique did was it opened the door to -to people-to-people exchanges, to educational exchanges and to business. And that is what really built the relationship. Because I think we all know, and as everyone in the room can see, as important as the diplomatic dialogue has been over the last 50 years, if our tourists and our people and our students and businesses had stayed home, we wouldn't have much to talk about and we'd have very little to celebrate. And so this panel today, what we're doing is we're bringing together both people and institutions that truly helped and contributed to building the relationship. And so we have Christine Lam, the CEO of City China, who um, has personally overseen uh, a period of growth and flourishing between the economic relations between the United States and China and a deepening of financial services. And beyond that, Christine has another really important role that while she may not talk about it, I think everyone in this room realizes, and that is Christine is one of a very small number of people who can talk to senior US economic policymakers and senior Chinese policymakers, and her quiet counsel and advice has been very important to both sides over the last few years as the relationship has grown. Uh, We also have Jeff Lehman, uh, Jeff Lehman, over the last several decades, has had arguably more influence on the development of US and China academic and education ties than anyone else anywhere. On both sides of the Pacific, he's had influence in, in how those ties have developed, and in his current role as the Vice Chancellor of NYU Shanghai, he's pioneered the development of a new model of economic, of, of academic cooperation. So we're pleased to have him. We also have Walter Liu, the CEO of American Express China. And Walter brings to us a special expertise because for several decades, he's worked inside and out of China, thinking through the difficult problem of how we link customers and consumers and businesses across the across the Pacific and around the region. And so the things that he's worked on has also helped to bring our two countries together. And finally, we have Roberta Lipson, the CEO of United Family Healthcare, uh, the CEO of New Frontier Health and absolutely a pioneer in the development of the healthcare sector in China. And beyond that, I think I would just highlight one quick anecdote about, about Roberta. And that was a little over a decade ago. I was working with a major U.S. company, a major U.S. manufacturer to choose a location for a large new investment in China, and I watched as they went from five cities to two cities to selecting their final city. And as they previewed the slide deck for me, um, the city that I was silently rooting for uh, because of my role at that time, um, they showed that it had lower costs. It had better access to a work, to a labor force. It had good access to markets and ports. And uh, overall, the cost picture was better. But then the last slide they chose the number two city and it went through all the analysis and the last slide said because of infrastructure. And so after the presentation, I said, what what is this infrastructure that's more important than costs and more important than access to a labor force? And they said, well, we didn't put this in the slide deck but we'll be bringing dozens of engineers and their families to China. And so that infrastructure is United Family Hospital. And so not only has Roberta and her organizations help improve lives and, uh, uh, and health in China, but has also facilitated investment and economic ties between the two countries. So we're absolutely honored to have have these, this group on our, on our panel. And so I remember, um, you know, Steve Jobs, you know, once said that we're here to dent the universe. And I always found that inspiring until I had a new teenage driver in the house And so I would say that these people all have individually and their organizations have dented the universe of US-China relations. But now that denting is not such a good thing, uh, what I would like to say is what they have done is not only have they planted the flowers and shrubs that have made the garden of US-China relations beautiful and valuable, but they've gone beyond and they themselves have helped clear the weeds and clear the ground and fertilize the soil so that other organizations and other individuals can follow. Uh, so we're honored to have them here today. So I'd like to start by directing a question to uh, to you, Christine, uh, and appreciate that you are beaming in from quarantine and, uh, and and difficult sort of circumstances with you know access to technology. So we really appreciate you being here. But could you talk a little bit about how your work and how financial services have really promoted ties between the two countries and um, and how it's really helped deepen the economic relationship and what it's done to bring other sectors into into the relationship
10: well thank you thank you Sean thank you for having me first of all and and thank you for uh, for those kind words you've sort of said right in introducing me I'll have to remember to include them and update my CV <laughs> denting the world right okay but getting back to the question I, I think I think over the past uh, few decades we we have all seen how china successfully successfully moved from uh, to to become you know the factory of the world with with a supply chain ecosystem that withstood you know challenges of even the global pandemic and 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 challenges of global logistics right to now become also one of the world's uh, biggest market right for for many, many sectors including commodities, mobility, consumer goods, healthcare, energy, right? The list goes on, right? And what does that mean in context of opening up, right? And it means that a significant increase in the footprint of foreign companies coming to China and operating here in China, uh, initially sort of manufacturing in China and increasingly selling in China. And this is absolutely sort of city's uh, sweet spot. We came to China 120 years ago, following our client's footprint, really. And in today, serving our MNC clients in China, which is one of the biggest markets for them globally, remains very, very much a part of, of our mission. And I think um, on the reverse, and just as we serve inbound MNCs, uh, Citi supports our Chinese clients as they expand globally, right, including in the US. Um, for example, we're one of the largest corresponding banking partners for the large Chinese banks and supporting their payment flows, you know, is, is part of the 4 trillion in payment flows that we process on and every on an average day. Economic activity cannot really happen uh, without, right? the, the uh, Without the financial system. And as you said, it's sort of part of infrastructure. Uh, for all of that to happen, and City is sort of very happy to, to have been. Uh, able to play a part in this, and and given our, uh, the fact that we are the world's sort of most global bank, I I say that, uh, you know, this is a critical part uh, of of the contribution in this, in in the last few decades. What we have also seen um, of late, and certainly in the last few years, is uh, we've witnessed an an acceleration, in particular in the pace of opening up, um, in the financial services sector in China, right? Uh, The China bond market is the world's, second largest and the equities market, the world's third largest, right? And, and we have seen, all of us have seen how record inflows into the local bond and equities market in, in the last two years. And again, in this regard, you know, the, the, the opening up, the uh, building up of the economy, economic progress um, cannot really happen, you know, without um, financial intermediaries, uh, such as, you know, including banks, such as ourselves. And, and what we have been able to do with the opening up, in particular of the financial services sector, is to enable and support the global f- flow of capital right, uh, in, into China. I, I still remember that one of my, my first um, China projects was sort of my involvement in B shares. Now this absolutely dates me because I would imagine that a lot of people in the audience, including our colleagues, um, uh, the participants in in the U.S. Would, would 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 not even remember right B shares, and we don't talk about it anymore. But but that was the first avenue that was opened up, you know, for foreign investors to invest into the China equities market in in Shanghai and in Shenzhen in in foreign currencies, right? But but obviously the world has advanced, right? Uh, uh, since then, and and there are now so many more. Uh, other avenues, so, so many more sort of sophisticated avenues for for investors to to access this market. In in fact, with the opening up, we are seeing more and more of our clients, right? The global investment managers, the uh, insurance company, the securities company are, are coming directly onshore and expanding their presence and their business. And, and with this, obviously, a demand for banking support in China, and and um, China gets international capital and I say sort of best practice from around the world and, and our ability to sort of enable and support you know, these clients of ours to come on shore, uh, just as what we do for corporate clients is again, you know, a way of our sort of enabling this economic, uh, rela- the, the development of this really uh, economic relationship and progress. Now, people to people exchanges, right? And you talked about that, Sean, and, and the flow of ideas come naturally uh, with economic uh, uh, relations, right? And, and with the opening up of China, we see at our institution um, sort of the benefit of these people to people exchanges and the flow of ideas. You know, many of our colleagues in China, for example, have had the uh, sort of benefit and experience of studying and working overseas, uh, especially at the, at the sort of management level uh, and a large number of sort of mainland Chinese work in the city network or around the world, right? Um, China leads the world in many aspects of actually financial services. Digital payments obviously is is an obvious area where China is at the forefront. In the more than what, like close to 900 million mobile payment users in China, sort of nine times that of the US. I myself came to Shanghai from Hong Kong with 6,000 yuan in in cash notes that I brought up with me, right? And, And that was six years ago and I've not touched cash since, right? And 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 China, I think City and I think the rest of the world in financial services is able to learn from China in this and in other areas and apply the learnings in in you know other parts of the business. And and I think this is as relevant as the knowledge and experience and global perspectives uh, that that an international bank such as the City you know bring bring to the financial bring to the financial services sector, right? So so again you know. Um, Economic relations, economic development cannot happen, you know, without you know financial services, and and we're just uh, very very glad and, and uh, honored to have been a part um, of, of this journey.
11: Thank you, great, um, thanks, Christine. You know, um, your mention of b shares, you know, brought back memories, maybe dates me as well. Um, but you mentioned that the integration and the cooperation of the countries has really benefited from financial services and the ability to. Uh, you know, to do business and banking on both sides of the Pacific. Um, to what degree, you know, we hear on one hand, we hear talk of decoupling, and on the other is, you know, that maybe some of this has run its course. Has this run its course, or is there really a role for finance to continue to to strengthen the relationship between the countries?
10: Well, I, I think, you know, I think what, was it was Bill Gates who said that, you know, the bank may not need, uh, the world may not need bankers, but the bank will always need banking, right? So, so I don't think, I, I think the role <laughs> financial services, the value, right, uh, for financial services mm-hmm. remains, right. Um, so if, if we will, if we, the last few years certainly have been sort of interesting and exciting development, I think, for financial services participants as well as uh, other uh, corporates in other, in other industries. I, I say that, you know, the uh, despite all of the rhetoric, despite headline news, and 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 the global pandemic that has sort of effectively put uh, a constraint on international travel, and that's why you and I are, are sort of zooming in rather than in in person, I, I think those activities are still going on. You know, from 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 our vantage point, um, uh, the demand for for. Uh, banking services in China that come from our inbound MNC clients, have not gone away, have not gone away. I mean, we serve something like, you know, 70, 80 percent of the Fortune 500 companies in, in China. Right. And in the last two years, we've actually seen our client base committing, implementing like over 100 billion dollars worth of investments in China. You know, um, and 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 so that that need for China and in China is one of the biggest markets for them, right? And likewise, the business that we do uh, with Chinese companies globally has not slowed down, right? Has not slowed down. And whether they are large, the companies large and small that we serve, they continue to turn, they continue to develop their business globally, right? And uh, and 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 continue. I see that need for. Uh, for global banking services, uh, equally right, robust uh, from from sort of both sides of the equation, so to speak, right. And and I, I guess um, to to add, and and I've sort of mentioned this before. Um, what has been particularly vibrant uh, and robust and and, so, and newer to the to the play is the is the um, players in the financial services sector, right, uh, with the cross border capital flows, right. Uh, uh, and and I guess the relaxation in um, in um, equity ownership rules that has enabled a lot of the uh, global players to come onshore mm-hmm. and play a much more active role in in the China um, financial services market.
11: Thank you. That's that's good news. Um, if I can turn to Jeff, um, hey Jeff, um, I think that you know the highest one of the highest expressions of people to people exchange is education and the education sector. Um, where you have people really learning in a deep way about other countries and seeing perhaps how people live and how they think. And I think it's been an extraordinarily important part of of the growing U.S.-China relationship. Can you talk about um, how you have seen the development of of education links and ties and its impact over the last uh, several decades, drawing both on your vantage point from being the president of a major U.S. university as well as your experience in China?
12: Sure, thank you. Thank you, Sean. Uh, And I think one of the themes of this morning's celebration uh, has been uh, the brilliance of the document, the Shanghai communique itself, and the way in which it embodied uh, the the farsighted vision of the political leaders and the diplomats uh, of the time. And I I really uh, do think that when we have the chance today to go back and read it, uh, with care, uh, one of the things that certainly struck me uh, was the sentence that you quoted uh, about how the, the, both countries agreed that there was an important uh, opportunity uh, and how desirable uh, it is to broaden understanding between the two peoples in areas such as science, technology, culture, sports, and journalism. And as someone who lives in the world of universities I think of universities as a place that brings all of those things together. And I think one of the things that followed uh, from the Shanghai communique in the creation of the normalization document in uh, 1979 was uh, an even deeper awareness of the importance of higher education to this process of normalization. There's a, a very famous story about how uh, in 1979 or late 1978, as things were being negotiated uh, for the second communique, um, the American side uh, proposed that there would be educational exchange, Uh, 10 students from the U.S. going to China, uh, 10 students from China going to the U.S. every year. And famously, uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, responded well, how about if we send 5,000 Chinese students to the United States, the American diplomat uh, who was in charge said, uh, I I think I need to call Washington. It called uh, President Carter, uh, woke him up at uh, three in the morning and said, uh, Deng Xiaoping wants to know if if China can send 5,000 students instead of 10. And President Carter famously responded somewhat groggily uh, tell them we'll take 100,000. Uh, and uh, mm-hmm. the, the message of that was then obviously borne out. Uh, two decades later, there were more than 100,000 Chinese students studying at American universities. Uh, and uh, as the last panel noted, uh, by, uh, by 2018, there were 375,000 Chinese students studying at American uh, universities. And I think uh, many of us who were involved in the leadership of American universities uh, realized that this was actually very important for us as universities. If we were to prepare our students uh, to live full and meaningful lives in the 21st century, when the two most important countries were clearly going to be China and the United States, we needed to be environments where students from the two countries could come together and could study together, live together, learn from each other. And that is what led to the development of a variety of programs. Uh, Some of them uh, started small, Uh, there would be uh, a few students going back and forth uh, between schools, but some of them uh, became more ambitious uh, the University of Michigan uh, started a program uh, where students would spend two years studying at Shanghai Tong University uh, and then would go to Ann Arbor uh, to complete uh, a degree. Uh, Hopkins Nanjing became a very important graduate program. Um, Cornell uh, started a program uh, with Beta, where students would uh, study in Ithaca, in Beijing and in Washington DC uh, very intensively in order to become truly bilingual, bicultural, and bipolitical. The, the next stage in, in the development, of course, uh, uh, would be uh, NYU Shanghai uh, and uh, Duke Kunshan University, these uh, very ambitious uh, Sino-Foreign Joint Universities. and I can talk about them a, a little bit more, but I think right now I, I would just want to emphasize um, how important these Chinese students who came to study in the United States were uh, for the improvement of the relationship. I think uh, the the students who came, most of them came back to China, but while they were at American universities, uh, they were teachers. They taught their American classmates uh, what China's really like, what Chinese people are really like, They forged friendships and partnerships that would last a lifetime. Then when they came back to China, they were again teachers. They taught their fellow citizens about what Americans are really like and what the United States is really like. They became a channel for mutual understanding that is vital. But a third group that was perhaps in some ways the most important ended up staying in the United States. Uh, many of them ended up becoming American citizens. Uh, they joined the communi- uh, the Committee of 100. Uh, they became leading figures in business and leading figures in higher education, in research. And I, I, I just uh, want to mention how important the presence of these uh, students who grew up in China, studied in American universities and became researchers have been to the project of fundamental research to advance the cause of human understanding. Uh, I just uh, recently saw a paper showing that last year, uh, almost half of the articles that were published in American uh, research journals uh, on science and technology and mathematics, almost half of them uh, included uh, one co-author who was born in the United States and one co-author Who was born in China. Even more significantly, when you look at the most cited articles uh, in Nature and Science last year, um, they included at least one author who was at an American university, a faculty member at an American university, and who had a Chinese name. I think uh, there can be no question in my mind that the Shanghai Communique and the vision of uh, the people who who drafted it and agreed to it uh, opened up a channel through which uh, higher education could be a bridge. And I certainly hope uh, that that can continue forward for the next 50 years.
11: Great, Um, Thanks, Jeff. If I could just ask you to very briefly comment on that. You've talked a lot about how, um, how academia has helped bring scholars together and how the traditional model of sending Chinese students to the United States to study has served the two countries well over the last several decades. But could you briefly talk about where is it going? Um, In some ways, it seems that COVID and other factors are causing that particular model to break down. Um, What do you see? Where is the future of academic relations between the US and China?
12: Well, um, I think uh, we've obviously hit a pause uh, we had a period where the development of these partnerships uh, seemed to be growing exponentially. Uh, when we opened NYU Shanghai uh, in 2012, I think all of us assumed um, that this was, uh, we were just early in what was going to become a tidal wave of these kinds of institutions that would be bridges. I think part of why we thought that was because we were seeing how the creation of NYU Shanghai was changing NYU, was changing New York University's understanding of how people should be prepared uh, to be effective uh, in the 21st century. Uh, Before uh, NYU had started as the University of New York, um, it had added a degree granting campus in Abu Dhabi. And then with the addition of uh, this partnership with East China Normal University, the first Sino-American joint university, NYU reconceptualized itself as a global network. The idea was that students would come in through any of three doors and would circulate around the world. And the belief was, uh, and I certainly still believe this, that the best education for life today is a cosmopolitan education. It requires people to become comfortable crossing borders and to be comfortable being effective working as members of multicultural teams, multinational teams. Uh, The best way to do that is to have these kinds of joint projects uh, where students are living and studying together with people from all over the world uh, as we've been able to do. Uh, obviously, the, the bilateral tensions and the uh, pandemic uh, have meant that right now, no American University's Board of Trustees will say, yes, let's start a project like this uh, in China. Uh, I uh, am an optimist. Uh, I'm very hopeful that uh, with the right kind of leadership and vision, uh, we will get back to a situation where there'll be more and more institutions like this. Thanks. I too am an optimist. and
11: I think many of the people in this room and the people who are are zooming in, I think are optimists the same way that you are. And we're hopeful that that will be the case. Uh, Let me turn to Walter. Walter, you've worked on projects for the last more than a decade that have helped bring, you know, consumers and businesses together uh, around the region and between the United States and China. You know, can you talk about sort of the types of bridging uh, that you've been involved with and that American Express has been involved with?
13: Uh, absolutely, Sean. First of all, thanks for the question and I'd like to take the opportunity to first uh, uh, say what an honor and a privilege it is here to be here with you, with the, my distinguished uh, panelists here to really talk about the importance of the Shanghai communique and, and what it has meant to us beyond politics and what role American Express can play in it. Uh, so if we think about American Express, uh, we have had a long Uh, and journeyed history of over 100 years uh, here in China, as well as establishing bridges between the US as well as China. I I won't go back that far because I can safely say no one here in the room is over 100 years old, I think. (laughs) Uh, But if I just turn back the time to 50 years, which is why we're here today to celebrate, American Express actually played its small part uh, in history as well. We're here to celebrate the, the events of 1971 and 1972. And at that point in time, credit cards was not a thing in China. And uh, uh, President Nixon and the U.S. delegation actually needed to pay for things. And so American Express issued traveler's checks to, the, to uh, President Nixon and the U.S. delegation uh, to support their travels while they, were, while they were here in China. Another part of history that we played at that point in time, uh, we talked a little about ping pong diplomacy, um, was the American Express Travel of Services. Uh, was actually uh, fundamental in helping uh, arrange the travel uh, for the uh, table tennis team uh, during that time. And so uh, just a little bit of fun trivia uh, in in terms of the role that we played. Now, if we fast forward the tape uh, to to present day, uh, American Express has been given an even more amazing opportunity and a platform uh, in 2020, the American Express via its joint venture with Lian Lian uh, here in China uh, was given the privilege and the honor of becoming the first uh, Sino-US uh, uh, foreign network uh, to be able to process credit card and debit card uh, clearing and settlement services in memory. So what does that mean in layman's terms? So that means that uh, for Chinese-based American Express credit cards, that are issued here in China, those cards, as they always have been, can be used globally on the American Express network, but now also domestically here in China, across our 18 million and growing merchant base. Uh, Similarly for US, as well as global American Express credit card consumers and businesses, when they come to China now, they can also experience the services, the payments, the technologies that we have here in China. So that platform has allowed us to now create a number of bridges. Going back to your, your, uh, the term that you used, Sean, just now, uh, and I know that uh, uh, Jeffrey just used the, the term bridges as well, which is critical here. Uh, so one of the first bridges is actually the technical component, right? You, know, you no longer have a network here in China and a network in the US. It's a globally interoperable network. And what that would required us to do two and a half years ago when we ran our business after we got the license was we had to develop the technical innovation if you, if you use a credit card which i know many of you do the chip on it has to be able to process standards according to both chinese as well as global standards on emv standards when you travel overseas and so there's a lot of innovation that goes literally into that chip as well as on the terminals that required working with the regulators, multiple cooperation with acquirers, with technologies, both in the US and China, to develop the first of its kind on any global network, uh, technology on a credit card. Um, and so that is a technical, uh, as well as a uh, uh, you know, uh, the version of the bridge that we have built. Uh, but I would say very importantly, and even more importantly is a second type of bridge, that we have built and that is around servicing, right? So American Express prides itself um, as being a world-class service provider. And one of the things that we've done in the past uh, two and a half years as we've grown our business uh, issuing uh, over 70 products in the past two plus years to Chinese consumers is bringing both local brand relevance, uh, value propositions to the products here in China but also ensuring that there's a greater level of consistency and service that they can experience when they go abroad. Similarly for global consumers, as well as US card members, when they travel here into China, they should experience a consistent and seamless experience in terms of servicing. And Chinese consumers, we know this, have become global citizens of the world, very sophisticated and they expect uh, you know, a similar and consistent service just as our global consumers expect when they come in to China. Part of that service that I would like to highlight is that it also includes um, the work that we've done to, uh, uh, to work on cultural preservation. So it's also given us an opportunity to improve the cultural ties between two nations. So we uh, have been involved in um, working with cultural preservation for the Forbidden City, with Sanxingdui um, and some of our, uh, you know, really cultural treasures here in China, as we do with American Express globally. And so when tourists, hopefully one day, very soon, get to travel in and out of China, as well as go outbound, they'll experience the opportunity to to really enjoy uh, the the cultural uh, value that China has to bring to the world as well. Um, And then I would say a third example of the bridges that we've been able to, uh, to, to build uh, is uh, supporting the local economy. Um, you know, as with any global economy, uh, a big underpinning of it is small businesses, right? And how do small businesses thrive, right? They need access to credit. They need access to funds to be able to build their business. But one of the challenges that banks here in China will struggle with is, right, how do we balance out giving loans and issuing credit to thriving small businesses, but at the same time ensure that there's stability and proper risk management in the local economy. So American Express as the only global network that does proprietary issuing and acquiring uh, overseas has been able to work and localize some of that thinking, working with Chinese banks, working with local governments um, to really bring the best of both worlds and data to to help local businesses thrive uh, by a number of pilots. Um, And more visibly, what we're hoping to bring uh, over the course of this year is, and our US uh, friends and families will will appreciate this, is the Shop Small movement, the Small Business Saturday movement that I think many of our American friends are very familiar with. And we're hoping to bring that to China as well to help small businesses thrive and and have a platform to really grow as well. So Sean and and, and to the the team here, those are just a few examples of some of the bridges that we've been able to build um, and have had the honor and privilege of doing, and we look forward to doing more of that in the future. Thank you, Walter. Um, Roberta,
11: I think one of the many areas that's moved over the last 50 years in China has been the development of the healthcare sector. And I think for much of that, you've not only had a front row seat, but you've maybe been in either the driver's seat or maybe the uh, navigator seat for much of that. And certainly for, um, for the premium sector in healthcare in China, um, you and your organizations um, have really led the way and been a model for others. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the development of healthcare and maybe how that's, how it's brought together you know, the best of the United States and China you know, over the last uh, you know, 40 and 50 years?
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Sean, for the very warm introduction and I'm really very honored to be here as part of this commemoration of such an important landmark in our two countries, Um, relationships. So as far as healthcare goes, China has made incredible improvements and development um, from starting from, let's say 1972, but really starting from the founding of the People's Republic. But if we look at just these 40, 50 years from 72 to now, um, life expectancy, for example, has gone from 60 years on average To 77.3 years. And in Shanghai, actually, it's 84.1 years. Um, If we look at maternal and infant mortality, um, it's improved by 90% over this time. And if we um, look at the number of doctors and hospital beds per thousand people, um, it's doubled. So things have gotten incredibly better. And I would be so bold to say that A good deal of that improvement has come about as a result of the openness between the US medical community and China's medical community, as well as the public health communities. Um, I, I first heard about the Shanghai communique as a freshman in college, a student of Chinese history and at that time. I was determined that by some way or another, I was gonna get here and become part of what was going to unfold to be a a really um, momentous change in the world. And um, so finally in 1979, I did get here and started looking for business opportunities. Um, Having come out of um, some experience in healthcare, I found out that Chinese hospitals really were devoid of any new technology newer than pre-liberation. I mean, they were proud of their GE refrigerators that were left um, from before liberation. Uh, some Russian-made X-ray machines. And so um, my first venture was bringing ultrasound to China. Um, And at a meeting of 600 obstetricians in Beijing, I watched as their eyes literally glistened with tears of happiness when they saw what prior to that they could only experience by feeling what a fetus was doing under a mother's skin. So um, it, it, it changed my life. And I spent the next few years taking a portable ultrasound machine on trains, stopping in every major city and showing it to doctors and hospitals. And um, I managed out of that to build a distribution company where we brought many firsts of medical equipment, including central monitoring systems, um, electrosurgical generators uh, and MRI machines, and later on surgical robots for the first time to China. And that business of exporting medical equipment and pharmaceuticals to China um, really blossomed for many, many American companies. Um, During that time, um, also we were bringing uh, Chinese public officials from the Ministry of Health, presidents of Chinese hospitals to the US to see that technology and see what was going on in healthcare. And um, so, Over that 10-year period, um, the major Chinese hospitals became very, very well equipped with equipment. But on those trips, the uh, officials would walk into an American hospital and would say, wow, why doesn't it smell like a hospital? Um, This is great, but it couldn't possibly happen in China. Well, I took that as a challenge. Um, I believed it could happen in China. And the other things that I learned were missing Um, with the development of the hardware of the Chinese medical infrastructure were modern approaches to management, um, process and outcome uh, based quality systems, uh, kind of humanistic approach to patient care. And um, that along with the growing expatriate population in Beijing and Shanghai gave me the idea that perhaps we can build a model in the country that would also service the unmet needs of the international population. So in um, 1997, we opened our first hospital in Beijing and 99% of our patients were in fact from the expat community Um, that has um, since evolved to um, 10 going on 11 hospitals with over 80% of our patients being Chinese. Um, So what I'm more proud of than the... um, million patients that we take care of every year, Um, the lives that we save are the new ideas that we've brought and um, what we've brought to China, including things like modern management systems, um, family-centered birthing, um, approach to birthing, uh, family medicine as the center of a service that could give comprehensive care tying together various specialties for the benefit of the patient and also continuity of over time. It was not easy to convince the authorities to allow us to open that first hospital. In fact, um, I'd been called crazy um, for that idea, Um, but persistence, we started talking about it in 92, um, ended up doing a small IPO in the United States because there was no financing available in China. Um, in 94, opened the hospital finally in 1997. Um, So uh, that's um, my little piece of the story. Um, I'm proud that that the ideas we brought were picked up by the public system in a lot of cases, Um, pain control and childcare really um, didn't come about till we proved that it was something worth doing. Um, But there's a much larger part of the story. And uh, Jeff and Sean have both talked about it, um, starting from the people-to-people exchanges, really right from the beginning where groups of doctors came back and forth. Um, The first agreement after the um, establishment of relations in 1971 was the Science and and Technology Umbrella Agreement, um, which was the foundation for many collaborative projects. Um, Since then and up to 2016, that collaboration has grown in many areas. Um, I think that we take great pride that the Chinese CDC, the establishment of the Chinese CDC in about 2002, I think was very much based on the collaboration that some of the research institutes had with the U.S. CDC prior to that. And most evident during SARS, we saw Really close collaboration between the US CDC, the WHO, and the Chinese CDC. Um, we also saw academic exchanges where hundreds of thousands of students and tens of thousands of postdocs um, went to the United States, also came to China, um, and, and really made great strides in medicine and healthcare. U.S. and China also did collaboration in Africa, helping Africa to build their CDCs and also during the Ebola epidemic. Sadly, um, the public health collaboration and the academic exchanges have um, greatly suffered since 2017. When the U.S. began reducing its funding um, for those projects as well as our own public health efforts, and um, not to mention funding for the collaborations. Um, academic exchanges really suffered partly as a result of the China Initiative, which thankfully has gone um, away. Uh, the US participation in um, collaborative research efforts have also suffered as a result of um, various, I believe, overinterpretations of the um, Chinese human genetics material law. Um, So uh, we also, our our CDC representation in China went from over 50 prior to 2016 to one or two um, now, which was part of the problem and why we had so much um, trouble for an early response um, during COVID and gaining information during COVID. We didn't have the people on the ground. Um, Yeah, so both countries, we still face huge challenges. Um, Aging population in China, uh, 264 million over the age of 60 now. Um, But by 2036, it's going to be 30% of the population. Uh, Cancer, 260 million new cases of, um, 260 million sufferers of chronic diseases um, in China now. Uh, and 3.7 million of those people die before the age of 60 and um, 3.92 new cases of cancer every year. And the five-year survival rate is still lower than the United States. Um, So we need to figure this out. We need to figure out how to get back to cooperation in order to put an early end to the COVID crisis. It's not going to happen unless it happens globally. Um, so, yeah, so I think we've, we've made great contributions um, to each other by way of our collaborations and um, they need to
11: resume. Great. Um, thank you. Thank you, Roberta. Um, what I want to do is we've got some great questions that are coming in from the audience. And so but before we do that, I want to ask one question uh, and have each of, the, each of you sort of respond to it. And, and the question is this. You know, At a time when I think people in the United States, or there are many voices in the United States, questioning you know, the value of the US-China relationship, or in the words of someone on the previous panel, you know, was the Shanghai communique a 50-year mistake? You know, it's easy to look in Shanghai at the glorious skyline and see how far China has come in the last 50 years and say, here's how China benefited from the Shanghai communique and the relationship. But what I'd like to hear is from each of you, from your perspective, um, we all know that it's benefited the United States at least as much as it's benefited China. So uh, could each of you in maybe one to two minutes max talk about the benefits that cooperation in your sector have brought to the United States? Maybe Jeff, do you want to start?
12: Sure, Uh, you know, I think, uh... My sector is is primarily about education and research. Uh, It's about preparing people to be uh, living lives of satisfaction and contribution in a changing world. Uh, It's about developing new insights into the world uh, that serve humanity. And the partnership between the US and China in higher education over the last 50 years has made huge contributions in both of those domains. I think uh, anyone who has studied in a more integrated environment will tell you that they have learned new ways of seeing the world and their creativity has been promoted. I think uh, any serious researcher knows that nowadays, the most important discoveries happen through international cooperation and multicultural teams.
13: Thanks.
12: How about uh, Walter?
13: Uh, Yeah, so uh, as far as the financial industry concerned, Is concerned, I would say there's three areas that uh, are really important uh, to focus on as we continue to work together between the U.S. and China, right? These are the two largest financial and payments markets in the world, right? And there's a really good opportunity for us to uh, leverage the cooperation between both markets uh, to to really help, uh, you know, foster a level of innovation in, in I think three areas. So so one is in service. Right. I talked a little bit about service and the role that American Express plays in that. And I think service includes technical level of service, as well as a consistency in terms of level of service across financial markets. Because again, we are growing more and more borderless, um, especially when it comes to payments networks uh, and financials. Um, I would say another area, uh, a second S would be scalability, right? You know, both China and US working together, I think can be greater than uh, some of its parts, in terms of increasing the scale of the financial markets, um, but very importantly, would be a third S, which would be the stability of it, right? Ensuring that uh, you know both markets are working together on proper standards, ensuring that as the economies grow, as they continue to grow from a payments and network innovation perspective, that we ensure that there's proper stability in the financial markets as well. And so, you know, in, the, in some of the examples that I shared earlier. We talked a little bit about some of the best practices that we're bringing, but I wanted to underpin that that is the benefit of what we've achieved here, not only over the past 50 years, but even going forward uh, in terms of the opportunity, not just to move beyond American companies bringing best practices in China, but also for us to learn, American companies to learn from China and the leapfrogging innovation that it's taking in my space and in my industry, um, it's about mobile payments as a, as a classic example of where as mobile payments becomes sort of the future in the forefront and digital technologies and digital currency becomes the, uh, you know, the forefront, ensuring that there's stability standards in terms of how those payments are processed is going to be really critical for both uh, 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 nations to work together. Um, and so I would say that's really important. And then the third thing I would say, and the last thing is would, would be, you know we've built um a really common understanding between both markets especially in my own experience with american express over the past two to three years but we really look forward hopefully it's not you know the next 50 years hopefully very soon uh you know we we can see the the borders opening up and that will really hope to unleash the potential whether it's in terms of uh the learning uh when you see more scale happening on the network or whether it's in terms of just the opportunities to have exchange and communications between uh, China and the US. I think really there's nothing that beats, I I love the fact that we're here on Zoom, but there's nothing that beats that person-to-person interaction uh, to really drive a better change of ideas. So I look forward to that. Thanks. And
11: then um, I'll go to Roberta and then I'll give Christine the last word because I made her start. But so Roberta, where's the benefit in all of this for the United States?
0: So I think that um, access to the Chinese healthcare market, which is now um, second largest in the world, has um, created lots of jobs in the United States um, uh, through through exports. Um, The fact that um, we have brought international and healthcare uh, services to China and, and the improvement in Chinese public health has allowed American companies, as you mentioned in your introduction, to feel comfortable um, coming coming to China. And um, thirdly, I think this um, collaboration in the public health arena is, uh, we can credit that with keeping SARS from having exploded onto our shores. Um, Yeah, and perhaps if we continued on, COVID may have not um, spilled onto our shores as well.
11: Thanks, Christine, I'll give you the last word.
10: Thank you, Sean. Um, Very quickly, I think I would agree with what Walter said in terms of the general principles of the benefits of collaboration in the payment space for scalability, for ideas, innovation, and, and otherwise. I would also very much agree with what Roberto has said, right? Um, you know, and, and this is sort of maybe a little bit uh, of the unique city perspective, to the extent that we bank these multinational companies, and that we're able to, to uh, help them you know, partake the significant opportunities in China, uh, and, and many of these are American companies, and, and that these activities are economically accretive. Right, and, 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 and that obviously benefits right? uh, the, 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 the shareholders and, and, you know, and, and all of that. I think there is one particular in, uh, other perspective that I like to bring um, out. Um, we are still dealing with sort of the immediate um, threat of COVID, that's for sure. But I think in the background and a much bigger and longer term issue is you know, environmental. The esg element of it and to the extent that you know esg is very much on certainly environmental protection and and, and, and carbon, decarbonization is very much a global uh, imperative and to the extent that we all understand that you know the world is not going to solve this problem without china solving this problem so the 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 the, the, the expertise the knowledge the perspectives that an international financial institution such as the city and others can bring, you know, in terms of the green financing, the transitional financing aspects of it to the China uh, um, uh, community, I think is beneficial, right? To absolutely the U.S. and and the rest of the world.
11: I'll stop with that. Thank you. Great. Um, thank you very much for all of you for for participating, and thank you to our audience. And um, uh, we. Um, think it's been a really useful opportunity to hear how the U.S. private sector and academia and healthcare has really served over the last 50 years to bring our two countries together and how it's really brought benefits to both the United States and China. So thank you Evan, for participating and signing off from uh, Thailand. Thanks.
1: Bye-bye. Well, Thank you, Sean, and I'll distinguished panelists for sharing your thoughts on the importance of commercial and cultural educational exchanges between the two countries. Thank you very much. On behalf of our three co-organizers of today's event, I'd like to thank our speakers and panelists for sharing their insights into US-China relations. I also would like to thank our sponsors for supporting our event once again american express city element capital asia fedex general motors johnson and johnson and nyu shanghai lastly i'd like to thank all of you for attending our special event in person or online to jointly commemorate the 50th anniversary of the shanghai communique this concludes our program today. Good day, good night, 再见.
0: For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.